0: Jeremiah 29, 11 is a much-used verse from the Bible. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and the future. This verse is used on greeting cards, posters, decals you can put on the wall, like that one there, not, a, not the same verse, but that kind of thing is available. It's used in Instagram and Facebook posts, bumper stickers, necklace pendants, coffee mugs, t-shirts, and more. In fact, if you can think of it and something can be printed on it, Jeremiah 29.11 probably has been printed on it and probably could be purchased for some amount of money from someone. Another reason this verse is used so much is that it's a promise from God. It's a very encouraging promise from God actually. And so people memorize this verse and they paste it on stuff all over the place in order to try to remind themselves of this comforting and encouraging promise of God. Most of the people though who use this verse, I would contend misunderstand it they misunderstand what it means. And not just this verse. The truth of the matter is all kinds of verses of scripture are misunderstood by people. And all kinds of God's promises have been misunderstood by many. This is my principle to start this message. People misunderstand God's promises. People misunderstand God's promises. Some people maybe intentionally distort god's promises and what he has said but i think most of the time very well-meaning people take scripture and they take the promises of god but they misapply them because they've misunderstood them and what they mean and what they mean for us and when people do this their understanding may be biblical this verse is a biblical verse obviously it's in the bible jeremiah twenty-nine eleven 11 is biblical by nature because it's in the bible And so sometimes the promises of God and the statements of of Scripture are actually biblical in some sense. But the problem often is that someone's understanding of a promise and how it applies to us is not unbiblical, but it is incomplete. Sometimes people unbiblically apply biblical passages, that happens. But in many contexts, maybe in most contexts, people take a passage out of Scripture, a promise of God, and they misapply it because they're not looking at a big enough picture, because their understanding of it is incomplete either from the context that it comes from or from the larger context of Scripture, or often both. And so people misunderstand God's promises, and a good example of of this, that their understanding is often incomplete, comes right here from this passage, Jeremiah 20.11. That's why I left it on the screen. If you look one verse before it, which you will if you look at the screen, the passage says... This is what the Lord says, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfil my good promise to bring you back to this place. Not too many people putting that on the wall, <laughs> or on a t shirt, or on a coffee mug, or on an Instagram post. But that's the preceding verse to Jeremiah twenty nine, eleven. For I know the plans I have for you. If you think this applies to you, are you willing to wait seventy years? Are you willing to go to Babylon, which is in modern day Iraq? See, what happens is this is a good principle, and it does apply to us in some way, but not in the way people think. People pace this over their lives like like um, it's going to sort of confirm anything that they want to do, that, that, that their future is going to be good no matter what. But God is telling His people this, look, the next 70 year of years of your future are going to stink. It's going to be bad. It's going to be the punishment you deserve for your sins, but I'm not going to reject you completely. That's what the Lord is saying in this passage. And so people who look at this passage and misunderstand it and misapply it do so because they don't understand enough of what God has said. A fuller understanding of what God said brings great clarity to many of the promises of God. And So we have this tendency. We have this tendency to misunderstand the promises of God. And in our passage this morning, in Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 41, Jesus surfaces one of these misunderstandings of the promises of God, specifically an under, a misunderstanding of a promise of God about Messiah. One promise people misunderstand is about Messiah. This time of year, Christmas, is when we celebrate the coming of the Christ, the Messiah, and those two words mean the same thing. One's One's a Hebrew and one's Greek, but they mean the same thing. They mean the anointed one. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas time, or Advent as it is called, the coming of Messiah into the world. But many people understand part of God's promises about Messiah, but they misunderstand some important truth about Messiah. And Jesus, in this passage, is attempting to surface some of the misunderstandings that his own people had. About Messiah, in order to get them thinking about who Messiah is and to look deeper at who he is and the claims that he makes as Messiah. People misunderstand the promises of God, and one of the promises they misunderstand has to do with the Messiah and what he means. Now, they understand that Messiah is a promised king. If anybody, even today, understands that word, Messiah, Hopefully, on some level, they understand the Messiah, the promise of Messiah, is a promised king. And that was the understanding that Jesus began with in our passage for this morning. If you look at verse 41, it says, Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that Messiah is the son of David? It was important for Messiah to be the son of David so that he could be in that Davidic line of kings. And so one of the promises about Messiah that Jesus surfaces and talks about in this passage and um, in the wider context of our passage that we've been looking at is the promise that Messiah is coming and that Messiah will be king. And previous in our study of Luke, just a couple of chapters ago, we saw this idea surface that Messiah will be a coming king. We saw it when Jesus entered Jerusalem in what's called the triumphal entry. Just one chapter before, in Luke chapter 19, verses 37 through 38, God's people said this, When he came near to the place where the road goes down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. The miracles pointed to the identity of Jesus as Messiah. And so they understood those who believed him to be Messiah, that he would be a coming king, which is why they said these things in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And notice Jesus doesn't stop and say, no, Messiah is not a king. He doesn't say that. Because Messiah was promised to be a king. They understood God's truth rightly and correctly. And so people somewhat understand this about Messiah, but they also understand this. They understand that Messiah would come from the family of David. And again, that relates to him becoming king. He must come from that Davidic line if he's going to be the Messianic king. And we've seen this in the Gospel according to Luke not that long ago either. In chapter 18, as Jesus was coming to Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, he entered into a town called Jericho, and this happened. In Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 38, we read these words and we studied them. It says, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, at the time that we looked at this passage, I told you that they were using a common way of designating people. In their world, like our own, first names are used commonly. They're recycled. There are many people who have the same first name. Instead of having last names like we do to distinguish people who have the same first name, they would often say, he is, you know, Jesus, the son of Joseph, bar Joseph, sometimes you might see it, or they would designate the town that he comes from, Jesus of Nazareth. That's what these people are doing. This blind man hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And somehow, he has incredible insight into the person of Christ. We don't know how. We don't know if this is something that the Holy Spirit directly communicated to him, or if he had heard some of the stories of the healings and teachings of Jesus, and he had come to this conclusion on his own. But you see in this verse, in Luke chapter 18, verse 38, it says, This man, this blind man, he called out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And I told you at the time that we went through this, this designation, Son of David, wasn't talking about Jesus' genealogical history as much as it was placing upon him a designation of Messiah. And here's a man who understood that the Messiah would be a son of David. Okay, and so God's people had some understandings of Messiah, and these are not the only things. There are other passages, of course, in the Old Testament that prophesied about Messiah and said, about, said things about what he would be like and what he would do. And God's people had these this patchwork of ideas about the Messiah, but they did not have the full picture. And in fact, there were arguments in the day about whether there would be one or two Messiahs because God's people had a hard time reconciling everything that the Old Testament prophesied about Messiah. In our passage this morning, Jesus surfaces some of these misunderstandings and he does so to make a point. He uses the opportunity to question their misunderstanding about the Messiah that God promised. That's what's going on in our passage. And it follows in a series of questionings that Jesus himself has been presented about the Bible. Now again, remember the context. Jesus has entered Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. He's been proclaimed as the coming king. And immediately after entering Jerusalem, he goes to the temple And he begins to exercise spiritual authority over the temple. He cleanses it of people who were using it to make money. And then he begins teaching the Word of God, and he teaches very authoritatively. And so the religious leaders start coming to him, and they start trying to um, peck away at his authority. They start trying to undermine his authority, and they do so with what they consider to be hard theological questions. Remember back in uh, chapter 20, verse 20. We entered into a paragraph there where God's people asked Jesus whether or not they were supposed to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Okay, This was a hard question in their book to try to stump Jesus and to try to say that he didn't necessarily have the teaching authority that he assumed. It was also designed to divide the followers of Jesus. Because no matter what Jesus said, they thought, this is going to be controversial and there will be people who stop following because they don't like his answer. Well, Jesus dispensed with their their stupid question very easily as we saw when we looked at that passage then in uh, chapter 20 verse 27 another group approaches him this is a completely different group they're all jewish groups but a different group theologically speaking and this is the sadducees these are the people who actually controlled the temple that jesus had commandeered and they wanted their authority back and so they come to jesus with a question about the resurrection And here's one woman who was married to seven brothers over a period of time, following the Old Testament commands. And they ask him, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus dispenses with their question very easily too. And he actually uses it as an opportunity to teach about eternity. Now Jesus turns the tables on them and he asks them some questions. And unlike the questions that they asked him, which he dispensed with very easily, God's people weren't able to answer the questions that Jesus brought. And the reason they couldn't understand or couldn't answer the question that Jesus brought was because they had a misunderstanding about the person of Messiah. Let's look together at our passage again and see what questions Jesus asked. He started in verse 41 with this question about Messiah's relationship to David. I've already shown you that this is, this was a common understanding that the Messiah would be a descendant of David that he would come from King David's line, genealogically speaking. And Jesus raises this as a question in verse 41. It says, then Jesus said to them, why is it said that Messiah is the son of David? Jesus asks for some proof to answer this question, not because he thought the assumption was wrong, but because he wanted them to see how the assumption was difficult to square with something else that the Bible taught about Messiah. And so Jesus raises the question about the Messiah being a descendant of David. And then in the next two verses, he quotes from Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1. So look with me at verses 42 and 43, and we'll read his quote. In verse 41, Jesus says, Why is it said that Messiah is the son of David? Verse 42 David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, and let me just stop here and help you understand what's going on in this passage. The word Lord, especially in the Old Testament, can mean different things. It can be a title for someone, like a slave can call his master Lord. Or someone um, in a kingdom might call the king Lord or someone who wants to be respectful to somebody else that they may not have a, necessarily a hierarchical relationship with, they might say, Lord, it's sort of similar to saying, Sir. Okay, that word in Hebrew is the word Adonai. The word Lord is also used of God's sacred, holy, personal name, Yahweh. And there are reasons why, but I won't go into them because that would take us a long time. In this passage, in Psalm 110, The Hebrew is, Yahweh said to my Adonai, all right? The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, all right? So this is God speaking to, David says, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And in this passage, Jesus quotes Psalm 110. And did you know that of all the Passages quoted from the Old Testament in the New Testament. No chapter of Scripture is quoted more than Psalm 110. That might be a surprise to you. It was to me. And that's because the early church understood, and even God's people and Jesus himself understood, that what David was saying in Psalm 110 may have been written at the coronation of his son Solomon, but it really wasn't about Solomon. It was about this coming king that God had promised to David in what we call the Davidic Covenant. It was about the promised Messiah that God had been talking about over generations of time to his people Israel. And Jesus surfaces this quotation and says, David wrote these words, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make, an enemy, make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then Jesus asks the ultimate question, the one that surfaces the people's misunderstanding about who Messiah is. And we read that in verse 44, and there Jesus asks the question, and it's a question about the implications of Psalm 110. Verse 44 says this, David calls him Lord. David calls Adonai Lord. He didn't have to do that. Psalm 110 could have been written, Yahweh said to my son, sit at my right hand. And it would still make sense, and it would still be true, but that's not what David wrote. What David wrote was, Yahweh said to my Adonai, my Lord. And Jesus surfaces this question and asks a question of his own, a question about the implications of this. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And to really enter in and understand the question that Jesus is asking, we have to try to put ourselves into the sandals of people who lived In the days of Jesus. In the days of Jesus. You would never call your son my Lord. Never. They lived in a very hierarchical and yes, a patriarchal society. Where one's father and one's grandfather is always considered greater than the person himself. It would be unprecedented for any king. King David included, to refer to his son as my Lord. Now, it is true that David turned over the throne to Solomon before David's death. He was kind of forced to do that, but it happened. And so in a sense, then, David became subject to Solomon, but not really, not like we do, like when a president leaves leaves the office of president, he becomes a common American citizen subject to the government just like anyone else. And yet, even though the former president is given great deference often and is viewed as um, a diplomat in some ways, he has no legal authority. That wouldn't be true in Israel. Even after David handed over power to Solomon, he would still exercise authority over Solomon as Solomon's father. And so there's really no instance where a king like David would say of his son, This is my Lord. This is my Adonai. And yet that's what he said in Psalm 110. And so Jesus' question is this We all think, we all believe that Messiah is going to be the son of David. But if that's true, then why would David refer to him as his Lord? That's really unusual. And of all the puzzles that God's people had tried to put together about Messiah, of all the prophecies about Messiah that God's people had tried to cobble together to create a a vision of what Messiah would be like, very much like putting a puzzle together where you can start to see as the puzzle comes together the picture that is behind it. As God's people tried to put all of these passages about Messiah and these promises about Messiah together. And they started to say, well, how could Messiah be a suffering servant like Isaiah 53 says he will be, and yet be a king? Maybe there are two messiahs. As they puzzled about all of these things, one thing that they showed tremendous non-curiosity about was this question, the one that Jesus raises. Jesus raises a question that apparently none of these people had ever thought of over generations. If Messiah is a son of David, why would David refer to him as my Lord? How is that possible? What are the implications of this? And the answer is that David must have understood that the coming Messiah would be greater than David himself. That although, or if, he was a descendant of David, that Messiah must in some way outrank him in a greater way. That's the the idea that Jesus wants to surface here. That's the answer to the question that he wants people to start thinking about and start puzzling over and start applying to himself. And so the point of this message this morning, the big idea for us today to understand is this, that Jesus was God's promised Messiah because he was one of us, but one of a kind. That phrase, one of us, one of a kind, is the banner under which I've put all of these messages on the gospel according to Luke. Because Luke while all the gospel writers emphasize both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus, it was a main theme in Luke's writing. Luke wanted us to understand that Jesus was fully human, but also that he was fully God. And so when I say one of us, I mean fully human. And when I say one of a kind, I mean the only human who's ever lived, who is also fully God. And the answer to the question that Jesus raises in verse 44, David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son is this, in his humanity, he was the son of David. In his divinity, he was David's Lord. Let's consider this together. I talked about this under the idea that God's people had some misunderstandings about Messiah. And the truth of the matter is their understanding of Messiah was correct. It was right, but it was incomplete. Their understanding of Messiah was correct, but they didn't have all the information put together properly. There were missing pieces or pieces that weren't fitting properly because they didn't have it all together. Their understanding of who Messiah is was right, but it was incomplete. Jesus was, in fact, a descendant of David. And Luke himself went to some pains to emphasize this. And also Matthew did as well. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so as, as Matthew was writing his gospel, he wanted us to understand that Jesus, the human being, came from that Davidic line of kings, that he deserved to be king because he was David's son. He was David's descendant. And Luke, in his genealogy, makes this point as well. He just does it over several verses, so it was easier for me to pull Matthew in, because it's all right there. So their understanding that Jesus was, or that Messiah was a son of David, was not wrong. Jesus sort of acts like it's wrong in verse 44, the way his question is phrased, seems to imply that it is wrong. The way Jesus phrases the question in verse 41 seems to imply that their understanding of Scripture was wrong. Maybe Messiah wasn't the son of David, Jesus sort of seems to suggest. But their understanding of it wasn't wrong, it was incomplete. Messiah would be a son of David, he would be a descendant of David's line, and Jesus himself who claimed to be Messiah and was Messiah, did come from the line of David, as we see in the genealogies of Matthew and Luke. So that understanding of of Messiah was correct. The part that was missing is this. Jesus was and is also God. This is why David called him my Lord. David understood that his coming descendant, who would sit on his throne forever and fulfill not only the Davidic covenant, but all of God's promises about Messiah, that this would be a unique person, that it would be God himself coming to rule and reign over Israel. And so David, when he was raised again on the day of resurrection, would bow before the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Messiah. Because he belongs on the throne of Messiah. Because he is God. In the Old Testament, even the prophecies about Jesus, many of them, carry the idea that the Messiah would be divine. Here's only one of several passages we could go to to see this. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is born is given there's the humanity okay but it says this and the government will be on his shoulders that is he will become king all right and he will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace as god's people tried to puzzle together what god had promised about messiah one of the things they seriously overlooked Was that God's promised Messiah would not only be a son of David, but he would be God Himself. And this is exactly what the Bible says happened when Jesus was born on the day we call Christmas. And Joseph, the adoptive father of Christ, was told this before Jesus was born. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. This is right after the genealogical thing I just referenced in Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 23, right after that genealogy, the scripture says this. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. Okay, there it is. You're someone who's in the Davidic line. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Remember the controversy about that, uh, that Joseph was dealing with was that the woman that he was pledged to marry with whom he had no sexual union, she was pregnant. And so in all of human history, the only way women got pregnant was through sexual union. And so his assumption was, she has been unfaithful to me already. And so the Bible says it was, his, it was in his mind to divorce her privately, which you had to do in this kind of arrangement, even though they weren't technically or physically married yet. God appears to him and says, no, no, Joseph, you must understand. The pregnancy that Mary has is one-of-a-kind pregnancy. It was a miraculous act of God through the Holy Spirit, causing her to conceive so that God could enter the human race without being imputed the sins of the human race. This is why what we call the virgin birth is necessary. It was necessary so that Christ would be human, but would be untainted by the sin that all of us have had imputed to us by God because we partake of human nature in the natural way. But the passage goes on and says this, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And As we approach the day that we call Christmas, the day that we remember the birth of Jesus Christ, it's important for us to remember the unique identity that Jesus had. Yes, Jesus was fully human. And yes, he was the son of David in his humanity. He had every legal right and has every legal right to occupy the throne of David because he is David's descendant by law and by birth. But the reason that Jesus is a one-of-a-kind man, a one-of-a-kind King, someone so special and so unique that even David, Israel's greatest king himself, would have to call him my Lord, is because he is God. That's what we celebrate on Christmas. We remember the entry of God into the human race, what is called the incarnation, where God, the second person of the Trinity, entered the human race in the person, the human, the man, Jesus Christ. And because this happened, because Jesus was human and is human, but also was and is God, he is able to fulfill every promise that God made about Messiah. Because he was God and man, Jesus can fulfill all of God's promises about Messiah. The enigma that Jesus seems to raise in this passage, how can... Messiah be both David's son and his Lord, is answered in Jesus. He can be both David's son and David's Lord because he has this one-of-us, one-of-a-kind identity. But the truth of the matter is that God has made many, many promises throughout the Old Testament that Messiah must fulfill. And many of them have not yet been fulfilled. They await the second advent of Christ, his second coming. And so, we who stand here by faith, we who have come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we who understand that He came the first time to be the penalty for our sins, to die on the cross for our sins, and we put our faith and trust in that, and we count ourselves Christians because of it, we still await the fulfillment of God's promises about Messiah, many of them. We still await the resurrection that He promises. We still await the kingdom that he promised to establish. We still await the perfect life that he promised to give us in his grace. We still await a kingdom that will endure forever, in which there is no sin and no sorrow, no problems, no death, no suffering. As we approach Christmas 2019, this is the hope we have. It's a hope that God has given us by fulfilling many, though not all, of his promises about Messiah. In Christ, we have received many of God's promises about Messiah. But there are still some promises that we wait for. And as we celebrate the birth of Christ on Wednesday, the day we call Christmas Day, let's remember that we're waiting for him to come again. We're waiting to bow before Him, our Lord, to give Him our worship and praise and allegiance as our Messiah, and to receive all the promises that God has made to us. Throughout all of human history, God has been making promises to His people. And as we remember and celebrate and worship the Lord Jesus Christ on Christmas, we also do so with an eye toward His second coming, when all of God's promises to us will be made good. And how will that happen? It will happen because of who Jesus is. Jesus was God's promised Messiah because he was one of us, but one of a kind.